Today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show is brought to you by Diabolic DVD. For almost 20 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all of your favorite labels, including Arrow, Synapse, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, Mondo Macabro, Blue Underground, 88, and many more from all corners of the globe. So whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic is the owner-operated small business choice you've been craving. Shop online at DiabolicDVD.com. That's D-I-A-B-O-L-I-K-DVD.com. Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Steve Niles is an American comic book writer, novelist, screenwriter, and producer with a prolific portfolio of groundbreaking horror comics, including Criminal Macabre, Ash and the Army of Darkness, Batman Gotham County Line, Ghosts of Krypton, which is a Superman adventure, and October Faction, upon which the Netflix show is based. Steve also wrote the original comic and adapted the screenplay for 30 Days of Night, among many, many other things. Steve is also the co-founder of Monster Forge, an extremely exciting new production house specializing in monster-centric projects that extends across film, animation, games, comics, and even toys. Steve co-founded Monster Forge with Shannon Eric Denton, and I actually got to speak to both of them about Monster Forge back on episode 67, so be sure and check that out as well. Steve is a legend in the world of horror and comics and someone I am a big, big admirer of. I was extremely excited to talk to him all about his career history, his writing and creative processes, and his favorite new movies and comics. Please enjoy this conversation with Steve Niles. Steve Niles, how's it going? Good. How you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks. Really, really good. I'm always impressed by your Frankenstein collection. Has that been going oh, strong for you. a long time? Oh yeah, I mean, like my whole life I've been collecting <laughs> yeah. them. So, but it wasn't until recently that I actually had a place to put them. They've all been in boxes for years, and we just recently got I got an office finally. Oh, nice. So. Turned it into my little nerd den. <laughs> yeah, I got one of those myself. <laughs> yeah, I feel like everybody has a favorite universal monster. Clearly, Frankenstein's yours, right? Yeah, oh, without a doubt. Nice, Love nice. It. I also have a creature collection and scattered. I have Dracula and the rest of the guys, but most of it's uh, most of it's Frankenstein. Nice, nice. Yeah, I think Creature is probably my favorite. Yeah. yeah, I think it's one of the, the more beautiful of the movies, but also the, the creature design was one of the first really expansive creature suits. And it was designed by, a, I forgot her name. It was, um, there was a Millicent whole book Patrick. about the woman who designed it. What? Yeah. Millicent Patrick. That's right. I knew it was Millicent somebody. Yeah. That's a documentary I'd love to see made because because she was a woman, they didn't give her the yeah. credit. And she was one of the, the like premier effects artists, you know? Pretty uh, yeah. pretty extraordinary story. Yeah. yeah. Also created the the mutant from this island earth. Oh wow! Oh, that's I didn't know that. That's super cool. Yeah. 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 She definitely deserves a documentary. 
So one thing that uh, I find really fascinating about you as a writer is, I mean, you have a very prolific history. Um, and one thing that I noted that you had said in a previous interview is that you never exactly, you never took writing classes. You learned to write by reading. And I feel like that that's, that's a huge concept. And I feel like there's a lot of aspiring writers out there, but can you kind of talk about how your writing education manifested itself? Like how selective were you with what you read and what was your reading diet looking like? And, and how did that contribute to your ability as a writer? Oh, you know, it's rough because I was a terrible student. I, uh, I absolutely hated school and didn't pay any attention. Um, but I'd be reading my own books, you know, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't pay any attention to red badge of courage, but I'd be in the back of the classroom reading. I am legend. Nice. You know, so, you know, so everything with me has been very self-taught. Um, I really feel like the way I got started was a great education because when I first started out, even though I was writing my own stuff, the published work was adapting Clyde Barker, mm -hmm. adapting uh, Richard Matheson, adapting Harlan Ellison. And I learned, you know, just how to tell a story by adapting great writers, mm. um, you know, into comics. Uh, so that, that really taught me a lot. Um, but, you know, mainly my, my education, if you want to call it that has been through reading, you yeah. know, just reading other people's work, you know, devouring comic books my whole life, you know, devouring novels, watching every movie I could get my hands on, you know, uh, so you, you just kind of fuel yourself that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like when it comes to writing, there's, you know, writer ability, how good you are at things like dialogue and description and whatnot. But then there's also this more nebulous notion of just good storytelling. And I'm curious, how did you develop your storytelling ability? Were there any do you ever return to the works of people like Joseph Campbell or anyone like that to kind of help you figure these, these things I, out, any mythological archetypes or how do you develop your sense I of story? I don't really, you know, I go back to my favorites, you know, which are like Richard Matheson. He's, he's just such a perfect storyteller. And, you know, I, I just, I love, I love his style. So I will go back to that at some point, but honestly, you know, a lot of it is just, it's, it's just practice uh, and, and instinct that a lot of it, you know, a lot of it comes through, you know, and also you know, paying attention to real life, listening to the way people talk, um, you know, things like that. Cause it is very, that's one of the things I've always tried to do is have very, you know, good dialogue, good, accurate dialogue, uh, really enjoy it with stuff like Cal McDonald, you know, criminal macabre, you know, it's, it's very dialogue heavy. And so I, I get a, you know, I get a kick out of that. What is the world building process like for you? Do you ever, when you're, I mean, cause clearly with a lot of the worlds that you've created, they have their own laws and rules and things like that, particularly when it comes to elements of supernatural and whatnot. Do you start with like any kind of a story Bible or is there any canonical work that you create before you start building a world? I will, you know, basically, you know, the last, I guess the last world building experience I had was doing October Faction. Right. And what I do is I start with characters, then I work in the story, and, I, and it's all about layering. You know, you keep, like I said, building. It's about world building. Mm -hmm. And it, it's a, you know, it's sort of a slow process at first, because I think uh, October Faction started out as a paragraph. And then it, I expanded it to five graphic novels. Yeah. 
you know, so it's, it's all for me, at least part of my process is I just, I'm constantly trying to layer in new stuff. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. When it comes to projects, I mean, there, there's, when it comes to writing, it's clearly, it can be a very arduous, difficult journey. A lot of twists and turns, a lot of banging your head against the wall. And I'm sure there's a lot of emphasis on not giving up on finishing whatever it is you're writing. But that being said, as a writer, I'm sure sometimes you you get into wall, you run into walls that are impenetrable. So I'm curious, at what point will you abandon a project? Um, I have a file just called miscellaneous stuff, and it's nothing but unfinished short stories, scripts, um, you know, things that for whatever reason, you just, you know, you get that energy up, you get a vision, you start writing it. And then, like you said, you just, bam, you hit a wall. Yeah. Suddenly, you know, you don't have an ending, you don't have a beat plot, you know. Uh, so what I do is I just, I slide it away. I put it in that file. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of Cal McDonald stories in there that I started. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I, I revisit them later. Yeah. Because I really, th- it's, it's just my state of mind at the time, you know, I'm sure. So I'll revisit them later, see what they trigger. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they trigger great stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure there's like, you can kind of take the sawdust from one project and apply it to another one. If, you know, a character from some project that never made it or a detail or something, I'm sure you can just repurpose all of that for, you know, other stuff that you're working on. I would oh, imagine. Absolutely. I did a, a couple of science fiction things over the last year. I did um, the disciples um, a thing called, uh, uh, graveyard moon. Mm-hmm. And there's another one that I can't think of that I did with Nat Jones, uh, Delta 13. Oh, wow. That started as one story. Whoa. And then I just sort of cannibalized it <laughs> into different. I just took like different elements and, and built those, you yeah. know, but yeah, yeah, I definitely, you know, I save everything unless I, I'd say once or twice in my life, I've just thrown things away completely. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I save everything because you just never know. Yeah. You never know what you're going to, when you revisit it, what ideas will come. Yeah. And as far as saving everything, I mean, I'm sure throughout the course of a, a given week, you are just bombarded with things that are inspirational for either a piece or uh, something that you want to write or nowadays in a, a movie idea. How do you, and I'm like, usually when inspiration strikes, it's not all at once. It's just a little element here, a little element there. You see an image that's inspirational or a piece of music or something. What is like your capture system for just keeping track of all these little things that could just kind of spark ideas for, for writing or for other projects? Yeah. And I was going to say, when I was younger, I used to do these bizarre charts, Hmm. Like little circle, I would write the character name, then it would connect to another circle that had a, a, a location. And somehow I would be able to go back to these things and and figure out what the hell I was talking about. Then I used to do a lot of stuff where if I got an idea, I just just dive in, start writing. Um, now, <laughs> in my old age, um, I get the inspiration and I write an outline yeah. and I pound it out. I pound out every detail before I start writing that, um, which has helped me incredibly. Mm. Um, I don't do it with prose. I only do it with comics. But 
mapping out the story beforehand. And it's any little thing, because sometimes, you know, you get a piece of dialogue that'll get you started. Yeah. Um, so I every little detail I can in that outline, then I back up and I start scripting. Oh, all right. And to get really nerdy, what does your outlining process look like? Do you have a board with cards on it where you keep track of, you know, details and story beats, or is it a matter of just sitting down in a word doc? What? I have done that. I have the wall of post-its, yep. you know, it looks like a serial killer's house. Yep. I've done that. But for the most part, it's just on the typewriter. I mean, on my computer and just pounding it out. Um, you know, almost like a short, almost like a short story. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times I, I get a little flowery in my outline. I'll actually pull that stuff and use it for captions. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And you, um, you played in a punk band earlier in your life. So how did mm-hmm. punk rock contribute to your overall artistic style and sensibility as an artist? Cause it's usually pretty integral for a lot of people who are fans, particularly people who are in punk yeah. bands. Well, you know, one of the things I learned from, you know, playing in a punk band, you know, we did everything ourselves, right? You know, we put our, our own show, Shows, we put out our own records, we, t- we booked our own tours. Right. So when I started thinking about doing comic books and writing, I didn't sit around, I didn't submit to anybody. I, I didn't even think. It took me years to realize that, oh, I might want to talk to some editors. Right. I just dove in. I just dove in just like we did with the punk bands, you know? Uh, it was, it's a very DIY attitude that I got from punk. Um, I don't know. I've, I've heard, you know, David Slade, actually, the director of 30 Days a Night, mm-hmm. has told me and wrote in an introduction that he considers 30 Days a Night a very punk rock book. Hmm. And I, 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 I believe him, but I don't, I don't, I don't see it. I don't, I don't quite see it the way right. you know, he sees it. It's you subconscious. Know, a very, a very aggressive book. I know that. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, I'd say most of the way it has affected me is in how I approach doing work. Yeah, you know? just getting in there. Doing I, it. I, yeah, I firmly believe in don't sit around waiting for people's permission. If you sit around waiting for people's permission, you'll be waiting your whole life. Yeah. So, you know, just get out there and do it. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's... Um... That's how you first, you got your initial graphic novels out by starting your own publishing company, right? Your own graphic novel publishing company yeah. instead of waiting for an opportunity. Eric Powell did the same thing when he first put out The Goon, which is, I think it's how you, it seems like that's how you get the most subversive, interesting work out there. You have to just do it on your own. Yeah. 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 You know, that's, I started out that way and, you know, I had a lot of success in on the creative side mm-hmm. um you know i wrote a lot of people that's how i wound up getting you know the rights to i am legend from matheson yeah and half the right to the books of blood it, it was you know it was sort of this punk rock enthusiasm that i just threw out there mm-hmm. um but it was always that diy attitude you know i mean you got it because you really you just can't sit around waiting for people yeah um you know at the same time one of the things I always say to young up and coming writers is to, you know, go to conventions, meet editors, because editors are the ones who are going to get you in, you know, especially if you want to do DC Marvel kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the people you want, you know, you do want to talk to and become friends with, because I have a lot of young writers who approach other writers, 
you know, mm. and I'm like, well, they're, they're trying to survive and get their own stuff published. You know, it's the editors. They're the guys giving you jobs. They're the ones you want to talk to. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Do you abide by any sort of, in terms of your writing practice, do you have any sort of a daily minimum, like in a Stephen King, 2000 words sort of a way? Do you ever quantify your writing? I try to, you know, if it's a comic, I feel good if I got five or 10 pages done, Yeah, you know, for uh, comic pages. Um, with prose, I kind of, yeah, I think Stephen King's 2000 is per day is very reachable. You know, mm-hmm. that can be done. So uh, I actually had just got done writing two new short stories for a criminal macabre collection that's coming out. Oh, nice. And I, I, found myself, I found myself doing that. Like, okay, 2,000 words a day, you're good. Yeah. <laughs> so setting those goals is, I think it's important. Yeah. Yeah, because it makes it manageable. Otherwise, if you just have the overwhelming task of writing something or finishing something, your brain, just our little monkey brains just can't handle it. Exactly. So, you know, it's like anything else, baby steps. Right. Right. <laughs> so one thing I did want to return to was the, the, the notion of, you know, punk rock in terms of basically empowering yourself to go do things and, and get things done. So I'm wondering how has that manifested itself into the DNA of monster forge now that you guys are a relatively new company and working on a multitude of different projects. How is the punk rock ethos manifesting itself into the company culture and you guys' way of doing things at Monster Forge? Uh, you know, one thing that's coming out of it that I, I, I would say is very punk rock <laughs> to me is letting people have their own voice, letting yeah. people. I'm not interested in getting scripts and tearing them apart and making them how I want to make them. Yep. I'm more interested in nurturing the property so that the person who's created it is happy, hmm. you know? So I, I, it's sort of that anti-corporate idea. Yeah. I'm not interested in, you know, molding people and forcing them into the, you know, into this hole I've created. I'm really interested in pursuing um, other people's visions. And right. it's been really interesting so far. You know, the submissions we've gotten, I, I'm spending, I'm still reading all the time. Um, and some, we've got some really interesting projects going as a result of that. Just sort of backing off, letting the project speak for itself, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like it's so important, particularly now with so many producers are overly concerned with numbers and what's trending. And, oh, zombies are hot. We got to do something with zombies. But you're now right. nowadays, I think, just with the ubiquity of streaming. And it just seems like it's it's easier for filmmakers to get their movies off the ground now. Although there's the added challenge of there being so many more films out there. But we're seeing a lot more unique voices and it sounds like you guys are really dedicated to authentic voices nowadays. Is that accurate? That's very accurate. You know, I'm very, like I said, I'm not interested in molding things to my vision. Yeah. I'm really interested in discovering other people's visions and, and, and seeing it through nurturing those. Yeah. So one of the things that I, that the nerd in me was really excited about um, when it came to monster forge was the fact that you guys are working with James Grumman Nice. Yeah. We're, you know, I met him through Shannon and I, I'm really enjoying this process because we're, we're sort of throwing some ideas at him and he's coming back with sketches and stuff. Um, you know, but hopefully, hopefully we're going to be making an announcement with him fairly soon. Oh, okay. Got it. So it's all under wraps right now. It sounds like. Yeah. Right now. Nothing's official. Gotcha. 
Cool. Is there any, are there any projects that you guys are at liberty to talk about now or are things still kind of under wraps? What we're doing right now is like I said, well, we're, we're going through a lot of, um, a lot of properties. We're trying to read everything. We're trying to get it organized. We have three or four things now that we are ready to take out and pitch. Very cool. But not talk. Got it. If we sell a pitch, we will make announcements galore. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, for, for right now, everything's just still very much in the, you know, in the pitch stage. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I know you had collaborated with Rob Zombie in the past. Is there any chance of yeah. him potentially joining forces with you again anytime soon with Monster I, Forge? I, you know, I have not talked to Rob for years, um, but he's very much he likes to do his own thing. You know, he really does. I mean, we only did two books together. Okay. You know, or two series. Um, and it was a blast. You know, I've worked with a lot of people and he was one of the first people that I worked with where we were literally like, I would type five pages, send it to him. He'd type five pages, send it back. And we're like playing hot potato. With oh, wow. Um, so he, yeah, he was really fun to work with and stuff, but yeah, as far as monster forge, you know, I, I haven't had that conversation yet. Okay, gotcha. And having worked with people like Rob Zombie, like Clive Barker, like all these, a lot of, you know, incredible other creatives, were there any big major creative lessons that you learned from some of the legends that you've worked with that you that carry into your work these days? Um, you know, Barker and Matheson, George Romero, John Carpenter, all these guys that have really left an impression on me. It's the simplicity. Mm. They don't overcomplicate things. They stress character. They do these things that I really like. And, you know, that's been one of the biggest lessons I learned because when I started out writing, I was very high concept. Yeah. It was all like, you know, meteor is going to hit the earth. (laughs) And then I would forget like, oh, yeah, the earth has millions of people on it. Let's talk about the characters and people affected by these things. And especially with horror, I've just really enjoyed that. You know, that's something Stephen King is just a master at establishing the characters, you know, and then putting them through horrible things. But you, you, you got to, you've got to empathize. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a big one. for me. Yeah. I feel like it's easy to get stuck in the trap of concept, particularly if you're doing anything horror yeah. sci-fi related, whereas it's easy to forget about characters. I mean, nothing drives me crazier than seeing a horror movie where the concept is enormous, but there's no care paid to writing the characters at all. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, 30 days a night, the high concept was vampires invade a town in Alaska. Mm-hmm. But the real story that came out of the comic was a love story between the, you know, these two sheriffs, right. you know, this couple. So I wound up finding the characters and emphasizing that, you know, everybody pays attention to the high concept, but to me, 30 days has always been this weird little love story. Yeah. Yeah. Which, how did that present itself? Was that just through exploring the characters and then the love story kind of found its way to the surface of the story? Yeah. They just, it, they, they wrote themselves, you know, Evan and Stella just sort of, as soon as I started writing them, their dialogue came to me, their relationship, you know, became very obvious. One of the things that I wanted to do, you know, in the movie, they have problems mm-hmm. in the comic. They're absolutely in love from beginning to end. Yeah. You know, and that was something I really wanted to do. Um, but, you know, but for the movie, they wanted some conflict. 
we want to, you know, some things like that. But, yeah. you know, for me, you know, 30 days was an exercise in trying to take the high concept and, and injecting characters into it. Yeah. And it was originally supposed to be, you were pitching it as a movie initially and studios were turning their back on it, but then you made the graphic novel and then they got interested, which I thought was interesting because it kind of having such a developed proof of concept, it sounds like that really helped get it made. Well, I think, you know, it was one of those things that took me a while to realize because what I would do is I would pitch, I'm like, yeah. And then, you know, these vampires are coming across the frozen tundra. And I just realized like, you know, vampires basically meant Bela Lugosi at that point. And they meant Buffy and Twilight. But that's what I realized, like my pitch sounded like I was talking about like a bunch of guys in capes running across the snow. Right. You know, I was like, no, no. And then, you know, once they saw the comic, they're like, oh my God, these vampires are like feral. You know, they're not romantic. And all these things that came out in the comic that frankly, I, I, that wasn't in the pitch. Right. Right. The pitch was purely high Gotcha. But it's smart creating a graphic novel. I mean, I'm sure the, the, it wasn't just for the sake of, you know, pitching the movie, but ha- utilizing the graphic novel as a format to just dimensionalize your story prior to pitching to yeah. turn it into a movie probably yeah. really helps because it just strengthens all the ideas and, and all of that's an interesting idea. Yeah, it really did. And, you know, the thing was when uh, when Ben and I did 30 Days a Night, uh, it was a freebie. We didn't get paid. Mm-hmm. It was just one of those opportunities. We were working for Todd McFarlane at the time and we, and Ted Adams contacted us and just said, we can't pay you, but you can do whatever you want. Good deal. So, you know, one thing led to another and we wound up, you know, working on 30 days. And at the point it was a paragraph, it was a paragraph and that's it. And so I had to attack it and, you know, I knew I wanted it to be three issues or, you know, one issue per act. Um, but that's, I didn't, I didn't know much when I was starting out on that. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing, a lot of writers kind of have their editor and I don't mean their actual editor, but somebody who they show their work to, if they're either not sure about it or whose opinion they really trust to kind of help bring the story together for Stephen King, it's his wife, but do you have anybody or any sort of process, like any group of people that you'll, you'll send your work to, or how do you, yeah. Um, well, Monica, my wife is my, you know, for, she reads everything I write. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's very honest, which I really love. You know, she doesn't let me get away with anything. Um, with finished products, what I, I will send to my friend, Rick Remender. Mm-hmm. Um, he and I are always showing each other what we're working on and stuff. And he's just doing gangbusters these days. So I'll show him sometimes Mark Miller, mm-hmm. um, cause he's a trusted friend. I've known him for years. Um, and, and that's really it. It's a very small audience. You know, it's really my, my poor wife, you know, (laughs) she reads everything I write. That's awesome. So when it comes to writing, there's a lot of books on the topic, a lot of courses you can take, uh, a lot of which are not really worthwhile, but were there any resources that were formidable for you as a writer, whether they be specific books or or anything, or was it just a matter of reading? Terrible. What? I'm just terrible. It's just reading. It's just reading for me. You know, I, I try to read books on writing and stuff. Actually, Stephen King's on writing is probably my favorite. Yeah, it's um, a great one. Uh, it's a great one. You know, and I just love the way it tells the story. It's about experience. It's not about do this, do that. Right. Um, I've always loved his attitude anyway. 
you know, you just shove a desk in a corner and start writing. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a great idea. But yeah, no, I, I'm, I've been horrible. I was, like I said, I was, I'm a horrible student, you know, <laughs> when, it comes, when it comes to doing my homework. So luckily I like to read and, and watch movies and all these things where I just sort of, I absorb, you know, ideas, but yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, last kind of nerdy self-serving question. I'm sure you have to absorb a lot of content these days between movies and TV shows. I'm sure you're watching a whole lot and reading, you know, comics and novels. Is anything recently that's come out really grabbed your attention, either movie, comic, novel, anything in the horror genre that that's really broken through the surface for you? For the horror genre, movies have been pretty slim pickings. Yeah. Um, the last ones that I really liked was were like Hereditary and uh, and the other one he did. Um, Midsommar. Mid, yeah, thank you, Midsommar. You know, I really enjoyed those. Um, Comic-wise, uh, have you read Philadelphia yet? No, I've heard of it, though. Check it out. Check okay. it out. It's really uh, Rodney Barnes and Jason Sean Alexander. They're just knocking it out of the park. They're doing great stuff. Um, it's not horror, but I got to plug my friend Rick Remender. His new book, Scumbag, is freaking hilarious. Okay. Uh, it's pure Rick. It's just pure Rick. So uh, I'd recommend checking that out. Okay, definitely. Um, TV and, and TV, pretty pedestrian lately. I've been watching WandaVision. Mm-hmm. You know, I, for, you know, for as much of a horror guy as I am, I do love the Marvel movies. Yeah. Um, you know, most, they, they, they pick at that childhood memory. You know, this is the stuff I grew up on. Yeah. So it totally plugs into that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's kind of it right now. You know, mostly I've been reading so many scripts. Uh, that's been my, that's been my life lately. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, Steve, there's a whole lot of fun. Thank you so much for taking the time. Any parting wisdom for those aspiring writers out there? Well, like I said, don't wait for anybody, you know, just, there's no reason that you, you know, start writing, just start, you know, getting out there, meeting people, doing what, you know, if you have to publish it yourself, publish mm-hmm. it yourself. Right. Um, just don't sit around waiting or you will be waiting your whole life. Very wise words. Thank you again. Great. Thank you so much. All right, here as always are some key takeaways from this conversation with Steve Niles. Number one, save everything. Considering the fact that he is such a prolific creator, Steve is always writing and frequently working on multiple projects simultaneously. Therefore, his mind is always coming up with ideas for his many projects, which is why he has a system for capturing ideas as they come to him so that when it comes time to write, he can face the page with a backlog of material to start from. Whether you're an Evernote power user, a scrapbook keeper, or simply using the Notes app on your iPhone, it's critical that you give yourself permission to be a hoarder of ideas. As a creator, your ideas will rarely come to you fully formed and instead usually show up as small, disparate details that are looking to be developed. This is why you will want to begin capturing all of this material as it comes to you so that you can arm yourself against writer's block with a wealth of concepts that can be molded to fit your current projects. Number two, heed the punk rock ethos of DIY. 
Few directors have cited that punk rock is a crucial inspiration and has been crucially inspirational for their entire approach to filmmaking, including Larry Fessenden. Steve is no exception to this idea. Having played in multiple punk bands like Grey Matter and Three, Steve was imbued with the DIY, which stands for do-it-yourself, ethos of punk rock at a very early age, and it completely dictated his career approach. In a nutshell, the DIY punk ethos states that you should never wait for any larger entity to give you an opportunity, but instead create your own opportunities entirely by creating your own platforms and by doing as much yourself as possible. This came about primarily in the 70s and 80s when a ton of punk bands couldn't get signed by mainstream labels, forcing them to launch their own labels out of necessity. Similarly, Steve's early graphic novel work was considered a little too transgressive, so instead of pitching to multiple publishers running the risk of rejection, Steve opted to start his own graphic novel label with Arcane Comics, and his career took off from there. This is huge, because when you own your work outright, you're effectively shielded from corporate entities who often want to water your work down to sell more copies or mold your material into the mainstream. This mentality is a slow death for most artists. So whenever you can, keep things punk rock and do things yourself. Number three, K-I-S-S. Keep it simple, stupid. Steve has collaborated with some of the greatest minds in horror, including Rob Zombie, Sam Raimi, Clive Barker, Wes Craven, and John Carpenter. One of the things he's learned from them all is how the strength of their ideas usually lie in their simplicity. They collectively have relatively simple concepts when you think about it, which allows their work to truly sing since it's not weighed down by complicated story elements. This is a big trap that a lot of writers fall into. Brimming with ideas, most writers want to pack their stories full of multiple concepts, storylines, and endless amounts of details, only to distract and disengage the reader with a bloated storyline. Simplifying, on the other hand, allows nuances like the artist's style, vision, and world to shine through, since it's not bogged down by overly complex details. Simplicity, however, is not easy to come by and actually requires more work than complexity. As the old saying goes, perfection is achieved not when there's nothing more to add, but when there's nothing left to take away. So heed the advice of the masters of horror as you're developing your stories. The simplest distillation of your idea is usually going to be the best version of it. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor. And on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show.